Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sustin Nagash from San Diego State University. So everybody, welcome to season five of Attached. We are so thrilled to be back and with a fresh new format, you guys. What? I know. Mixing it up a little bit here. We have listened to our listeners, believe it or not, uh, like all healthy relationships, of course. And our new format really centers around what is newest in what we know about relationships from the science of how we connect with each other. Today in our brand new format, Sarah has brought us some new research on love languages. Ooh, love. Um, So really excited to jump into that. If you have some new research or topic ideas on relationships that you want us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, all at Attached Podcast, or go straight to the source, attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. For bonus content and to support our little pod, please go to Patreon at patreon.com slash attached. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, so on and so on, please rate and review it and subscribe. So let's get into it. Today, we're taking a deep dive into some new research on love languages. Although love languages are something that has become firmly part of how relationships are discussed in pop culture, the original idea introduced in 1992 by author Gary Chapman to describe how people prefer to express and receive love from their partner. His original self-help book, which has actually sold over 12 million copies, Chapman describes five love language, including, get out your pens and paper, everybody, acts of service, gifts, quality time, words of affirmation, and physical touch. He also developed a quiz you can take to identify your preferred love language, asking questions like, it's more meaningful to me when either I can spend time alone with my partner or just the two of us, or my partner does something practical to help me out. The ultimate goal is for both partners in a relationship to identify the primary way they prefer to receive love And more importantly, for partners to better understand how they can express affection to their partner using the love language their partner prefers so that the relationship becomes more satisfying for both people involved. Especially since Chapman suggests that how people show affection is typically how they prefer to receive it, not how their partner actually prefers to receive it. In other words, I may show affection in a way that feels most natural to me, but my partner may not find that very meaningful to them. Using the love languages approach, the quality of a relationship would be most satisfying if 
there is an alignment of affection. For example, if I prefer to receive affection as physical touch and my partner regularly holds my hand um, and my husband finds gifts meaningful and I get him thoughtful presents whenever I travel for work. So making sure, again, that those what I get give aligns with what uh, my partner wants or prefers. However, as we have discussed on Attached before, although people seem to refer to their love language all the time, everywhere now, it's definitely infused in pop culture, there's not really been much science to support them. Even if the five love language are truly unique ways we can be affectionate, the idea that aligning how we show affection with what our partner prefers will result in better relationships has not been supported by the research. Part of the issue may be, for example, that selecting one primary love language ignores the fact that we may find several of them meaningful. And what if my partner is giving me the words of affirmation I crave, but I'm not even noticing because I'm like so stressed out at work, I can't even like pay attention and absorb that. So thankfully, we have new research by Dr. Anthony Coy and Lindsay Rodriguez out of the University of South Florida to help guide us in their new Journal of Marriage and Family Therapy paper titled, Affection Preferences, Enactment, and Relationship Satisfaction, a Dyadic Analysis of Love Language. Sarah, what you got for us? Yeah, so this this work, this um, new science on love languages is a really nice step in the right direction to sort of explore um, what, uh, what the creator of love languages says makes this idea so um, helpful, so beneficial for couples. Um, And particularly because they do this work with couples. So um, unlike other kinds of science around relationships where we ask one person to respond about how their relationship works, they are doing this science using actual couples, which seems like such a basic caveat, but also, um, as we've talked about before many times unattached is, you know, very challenging to do. Um, mm-hmm. So they're really grounding their work in the idea of responsiveness, which is also um, an idea out of psychology research that we've talked before several different times unattached, which is this idea that um, we are engaging in a process of actually performing a behavior that is intended to meet a partner's needs or wants. And in order to do that, that really requires that we understand our partner's needs and that we don't let our own needs get in the way of understanding that. And that we really also value our partner and what they need out of the relationship instead of just dismissing it. So that then that sets us up to be more able to respond in such a way that conveys you really care about that person uh, and not just in a way that aligns with Um, what you might prefer happens in a relationship. And so this idea of responsiveness is really key to understanding what can be really successful in happy, satisfying relationships, um, that there is this both understanding and also responding uh, process back and forth. So this research um, uh, used 84 couples. They had been together at least three months. Uh, The the, um, mid-range was they'd been together, I think, about four years. Um, On average, they were about uh, 31 years old. Um, 73% of the couples identified as white. uh, And the majority were in, according to the authors, different sex relationships, but not all. 
Um, so what they did was they first took the love languages survey that you can find if you get the book. I think you can even take it on the, the website, Gary Chapman's love languages website, which I'm sure gets 12 million visitors per day. Um, <laughs> uh, so they took that survey and they broke it into two. So rather than it, every item being an either or, where you have to sort of prioritize, I want this or this, they broke it out into two. So people could select um, what they really like in terms of how their partner shows them affection. And they ranked both their preferences as well as what they um, uh, behaviors that they themselves performed um, uh, in terms of like, uh, I would like my partner to run errands or put gas in my car. That's a preference I get to rate. Um, and separately, they rated, I try to run errands for my partner. So uh, they could look at both what people prefer and how they behave towards their partner to see where there is alignment, if any. Um, so what they were looking at was whether those patients, patients, wrong side. So this would allow, rather than, you know, at the end of the quiz saying, this is your love language and you have one, this would allow people to kind of rate how much they prefer each of the love languages. So it doesn't necessarily um, isolate someone to having only one love language, right? They could be on a scale on each of them. Yes, they looked at each of the love languages separately when they analyzed the data. But yes, people could fall in ranges on each of them, which is different than if you bought the love languages book and took the love languages quiz, you would fall on primarily your primary love language. Yes, this allowed for okay. some variability. Um, so what they found is that people in these couples tended to overestimate the extent to which their partner desired any one of these kinds of, uh, they're referring to them as modes of affection, and uh, which feels like a very sciencey way to take the um, <laughs> the term love languages and make it sort of um, a little bit more uh, vanilla. Um, but the, the greatest overestimation was for physical touch. Um, and across all of these love languages, the more somebody preferred a particular love language, the more they thought their partner also preferred that. That was especially true for um, acts of service and words of affirmation. Um, but in general, people also had a lot of accuracy in how they perceived their partner's preferences, um, which I think is uh, is really interesting. So they looked at the difference between the accuracy and that alignment. Do I understand my partner? And where there's also some bias that might be related to my own preferences. Um, and so what they found was that people that did a lot of acts of service that in general was related to understanding accurately that that's what my partner's love language is. They were getting that right, but it also was related to preferring acts of service, mm. um, uh, which was, um, uh, they believe that that's what their partner prefers in part because that's what they prefer. Uh, so there is, it's due to both of these things, right? There's some accuracy and um, so I'm getting it right, but also, I am, um, if I prefer it, yeah. I also so, very strongly believe my partner does. So are you happening to get this one right because you yourself prefer service? Sure, sure, <laughs> sure. Or you have somehow magically partnered with somebody that just uh, aligns yeah. from the start, right? Uh, we're just an acts of service family. This is just how we identify. Um, possible. 
<laughs> there is also, they also found that a greater preference for gifts. So if I, if I uh, have a really strong preference for that as my quote, love language, and it's also linked to perceiving that my partners provide more gifts, which I mean, how nice is that? If I like those things, then I also am like, hey, my partner's always coming home with gifts. Uh, the flip side, if I prefer words of affirmation, um, then I perceive my partner as being less affirming. So if that's my love language, um, there is some uh, difference there. And essentially, I, I may not be getting enough of that from my partner. In terms of the alignment piece, what they did find was that accurately understanding your partner's preferred love language was linked to your own relationship satisfaction, except mm -hmm. for words of affirmation. So if I know what my partner prefers, even I am more satisfied in this relationship, which I think sort of speaks to that global value of understanding each other. But if your understanding of your what your partner prefers is driven by your own preferences, they found that these couples, uh, the satisfaction, relationship satisfaction did not benefit in the same way. So that bias, when we're biased in terms of thinking what our partner prefers, that bias is driven by what we ourselves mm -hmm. prefer, the relationship satisfaction, you didn't see the same bump for people. And I do think what's interesting is they did seem to find here, and I, I'd be curious what y'all think, but um, they did seem to find that accurately perceiving your partner's preferred love language was not linked to your partner's relationship satisfaction, which I think is sort of really key to love languages. So if I understand my partner benefits me, but my partner's relationship satisfaction doesn't necessarily get a bump is really yeah. sort of an interesting finding here. And um, I, I do think, I mean, there are some limitations, uh, like any science around relationships, like any science period, there are some ways in which if you were going to do this study, again, you might add in some other, you know, variables, some other pieces and continue to sort of explore that. I think one of those things being not necessarily looking at sex as a possible variable that might sort of either influence love language, right? So is there some differences between men and women in terms of who prefers which love language or how this happens? And this is, they looked separately, of course, at the behavior versus the relationship satisfaction. But, but I think in general, they're, they're finding some value to understanding your partner because then you're more likely to behave in a way that they are saying themselves they prefer. And that also, that understanding might benefit how I feel in the relationship. But interesting, this caveat, I think of not necessarily benefiting your partner's relationship satisfaction. So really interesting study that did this in some really very nuanced ways, um, which is, I, I think, really very cool. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, really fascinating study. I, I wonder what that piece that you were talking about, uh, understanding your partner's needs help my relationship, but not my partner's, how that might play out or look in in therapy. I really think for me, what kind of kept research throughout this is this idea to me how critical communication is. Communication, therefore knowing your partner, what their partner's preferences are, right? Like that would be the link. And that's just what I kept on thinking about is how important that clear communication about what your needs are and from your partner, how maybe they can try and meet your needs is. I agree with that piece about communication, it, it definitely stood out to me. And I, and I kept thinking about like really the how you communicate about love languages is really important, not just that you talk about it. I think the simple sometimes 
idea is just to express what your love language is to your partner. But I think it goes a little deeper than that if we are to think about trying to override bias when in certain moments when somebody might just naturally be inclined to use their own preference to. So it's like, I was thinking about one is like, what are the stories behind our love languages? Why are we driven to prefer acts of service over something else? And I think sometimes when we start to get into the storytelling, when we started getting into the the whys of why we are connected to certain love languages, we tend to, I think, really capture our partners, maybe attention a little differently around those love languages, which ideally would mean that they would be really working more intentionally to try to engage in those love languages as 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 opposed to a default response. So I, I think the how is really important. Yeah, that how is that popped up for me too, especially knowing that this is a cross-sectional study, right? This is all at one time point. So a lot of these could be, these associations could in, in theory be bi-directional, right? It could go the other way. What you were saying, Sasson, really resonated with me in terms of relationship satisfaction and how people who prefer um, affirmation is actually linked to lower relationship satisfaction is what they found. But I, I'm curious, I wonder if it's actually the reverse direction. People who have lower relationships satisfaction if they are looking more for those words of affirmation from their partner. So that's why currently they're preferring those, whether it's in the current relationship or past relationships, that why. That's what I also was wondering is like the context of the relationship and past relationships. And maybe that directionality is very cyclical. Of course, it's beyond the study here. And I I didn't expect for them to to do it in a cross-sectional study. But in future research, I'd be very curious about potentially cyclical natures of relationship satisfaction and shifts in those love languages. I do think yeah. similar to what part of what you're saying, Susan, in terms of how does communication unfold, I think also I, I wondered if words of affirmation, if that's if that's something you need from your partner, whether that's something you need because you're not getting enough of it ever, or you're needing it in the moment or at a certain kind of time, right? I wonder how easy that is for people to ask for. Like if that's something I really need, if I'm having to communicate that to you to say, I really need you to verbalize your appreciation for me. I don't know how natural people in general find that. Like I I need you to praise me is not something I probably hear people say too often. Like, please tell me what I'm doing well is I just sort of wonder also if that's out of people's comfort zone. And so if that is something you're needing, knowing that that's something you need and finding a way to say it might be also very important. That's a really good point. Saying I want more gifts sometimes is a lot harder. Can you dote on me more in terms of gifts? It could be a lot easier than I need you to praise me. I mean, obviously that's not how couples you talk, but it seems like there's some things that are more tangible too, right? Like a gift is a tangible thing that's easy to ask for, but like how you want to be praised or affirmed is, is sometimes a little bit harder. I can imagine. It's easier to say, could you put your cell phone down while we're watching TV together? Because like, I really love spending quality time with you. Yeah. It's a lot. That's very natural, I think, or or easier for people to say than like, I really am going to need you to verbalize that you are thankful yeah. for me. And is it more natural for people? Both of these things that we're saying is easier to talk about because it is pervasive. And we know that we get bombarded all the time, less sc- screen time, like talk to your people more. But we know that's like a narrative that's easy to latch onto. Giving gifts, bringing flowers, you know, whatever those are, we see those across all. Any TV show with a couple in it, like they're going to be gifts 
involved. So those are easy to latch onto because we see them all the time. But praise and asking for that is not something that we see frequently out in the world. At least I don't think I don't think it's modeled for us unless maybe it's in the middle of an argument. Right, right. I mean, and and some of my experience of that comes out of like specifically clinical work. Like as a therapist, I'm not typically seeing people whose relationships are always necessarily very satisfying. And I don't know what you think about this, but when I think about how uncomfortable and unusual it feels for people when I'm asking them to talk about like what is particularly strong about their relationship, like people squirm at that question. They're ready to launch in, maybe talk about like, here's all the things that aren't going right. Or even when I'm teaching, like if I specifically start with, here's what I see that you're doing really well, you can Mm. watch people get uncomfortable with that. And and they'll try to forcibly redirect me to talk about, yeah, but what should I do different? Like, what did what did you see that I was doing wrong? Well, well now yeah. I'm not, yeah. not going to tell you. <laughs> well, I think it, because it takes a certain level of vulnerability to do that, I think. And, you know, we all know our own relationship in general, our society's relationship with vulnerability is really complicated. I think it's really hard to do that for certain, for a lot of us, not, you know, not just for certain people, but for a lot of us. So there's, there's a lot of internal work that we need to do in order to also be able to do that with others. And so that can make it really challenging. Another thing that really came up for me is this idea of, I appreciate in this in this study that they didn't just focus on one love language, but also at the same time, I think about how important it is to really contextualize love languages in mm-hmm. particular moments. And that that came up mm. for me about how, especially when we're we're using like a like our the bias to determine what to use. I think like when we don't realize that there's really there's complexity involved in using these love languages. And I think that's where hopefully the science starts to move if we're going to really hold on to this, this larger concept. What when do we situate love languages? That takes more work. It's not just putting people in a box and saying this is their love language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know I- yeah. I completely agree with you that love languages is very likely contextualized, but that's not what that original book is, right? He doesn't contextualize it at all, which I I I agree. I, I'm really curious about where the the research goes and 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 critical to this piece they didn't examine if love languages were accurate. Like that is not what this this study was. It didn't look at to see if are those love languages, is this accurate? Is this what we're seeing out, out in the world? But maybe like it's a trait versus state type of when we think about personality, a trait versus state, it's almost like that concept with love languages. Is it, or is it a, a state? So, yeah. I mean, do you think they reference earlier research that suggests that they have looked at sort of the typology using some of the survey measurement and that that does maybe sort of hold up a bit. But Mm -hmm. I do really, really, really appreciate that these authors were like, "Eh, let's not just peg somebody in one square and let's take a more nuanced view of the variation in where any one partner falls on all five of these and then look at how this works for each of these love languages. Because I think just like you're saying, Sesson, this is that's much more realistic in terms of and much more helpful like so much more helpful. Yeah, I, I think it, you know, opens the door to more research in this area to say, okay, now that we know that there's more variability, how does that look in particular context when you're parenting versus when you're, it's just exclusively about mm-hmm. the parent or dyad versus when it's about your history versus when it's about your trauma 
versus when it's, you know what I mean? I think yeah. that it's something we have to recognize because otherwise I think these could be used in a way that's problematic to relationships, right? It's like, I'm doing your love language. Why isn't this working? Yeah. Why aren't you satisfied, right? Which is what we're saying. It's like, yeah. it's not as simple as just doing the, their love language. It's like, there's more nuance involved and, and we have not explored the nuance um, as recently. Right. Which is where that communication piece comes in, which is key. I completely agree with you, Sasson. Really great point. And how that changes over time too, even just over sort of changes in the life course. Like I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking about words of affirmation is not necessarily, I would not in reading the description of these love languages suggest that like I fall very strong in that category, but man, like right after I had a baby, that first six mm. months, if, if people had told me I was doing well, I, I feel like I needed to probably hear that then at a time that otherwise sort of felt really isolating and totally anxiety provoking for me. That's not everybody's reaction to having a child, obviously, but it was mine. And the strength of that experience was uh, surprising. And I definitely was like, oh, this, I have made a mistake. I have made, oh, no. I have made a, a large error here. This is not for me. I don't, I don't know what I am doing <laughs> at all. Um, and those books were not telling me I was doing a good job. They were just like, here, try all these other things. We're like, okay, more bicycling. Yeah. And I, I, I can appreciate that. And I think it gives an example to how like this is, it can maybe be very fluid, right? And it's this, not this static thing that people, like you said, experience, but like fluid across the lifespan. And within our relationship, like you said, Pierre, I think that's why it requires a lot more communication from, from year to year in your relationship, from transition to transition, from crisis to crisis those love languages might just shift and be different in terms of priority. And so if, if people are going to hold to these ideas, they need to really do it in a way where they're they're really being flexible with the idea that maybe it's different this time around. Um, so I hope our, I hope these conversation around love languages evolves and they're not just used as these sound bites that we see in social media and within, you know, movies and, and, and reality dating because it deserves more unpacking. Have we talked about the influence of gender enough? I, I think I only just mentioned it as a possible limitation. One of the things that I also keep on thinking about is how a lot of these love languages can be gendered, right? Men and women in our society are socialized to express love in, in different ways. You know, acts of service versus physical touch may be somewhat gendered. I'm I was very curious about how a lot of these associations may be moderated, you know, or or different depending on the gender that that person was socialized to identify with and how that might also impact that those communication elements that we're talking about and perceptions of and how it might affect that the agreement or of, of those love language or the accuracy might impact our relationships is something I was thinking about as well throughout this. Yeah, the gender piece came up for me too a little bit as I was reading that. Yeah, I, I do think um, when you when you think about other areas of the science on relationships that we have talked about on this podcast before, in terms of thinking about the uneven division of household labor that happens even in for couples and families where there are two income earners, there tends to be sort of a, on average, a pretty heavy skew towards women doing a lot more household labor, even if 
both partners and a different sex couple are employed in paid employment outside the home. And then you read the description of acts of service being things like doing the dishes and putting gas in the car, vacuuming, running errands, like helping with those household activities. And I, I really, I really would be interested to see whether that preference is skewed in one direction towards um, maybe women really needing and wanting and deserving some more support in those activities that we know continue. I mean, and this only got worse over the last few years, uh, the research the we talked about even on this podcast about the skew getting worse for women, uh, the heavy, heavy labor that women are carrying. And so that that makes me very interested. And I, I know that they did not look at that in this study. And I, um, uh, truthfully, I don't know off the top of my head whether there's like science to support that, but that is the area of other kinds of science that I am thinking about when you ask that question about um, gender identity and how we're sort of socialized to set up families. Yeah. So you're right. It, there's not, I don't think research specifically on gender and love languages, but I, I, we're thinking about like other kind of research and division of household labors and such like that. Yeah. Good point. Thank you. Fascinating for future research for anyone who's interested. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think as this hopefully research develops more, I'd be curious to see within certain groups what this looks like, right? Thinking about socioeconomic factors, thinking about race and ethnicity, thinking about like all of these variables that we know are often, you know, intersect with these relational outcomes. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot more to look at with regards to this. I'm curious if uh, the authors of this paper or, or others are, are going to pick that up and, and run with it. I mean, Given that there's been a large gap between the first time this concept is, was published in 92, was it? And now, you know, given how few articles there have been, you know, that to me is surprising, but I, I hope that that changes. Hopefully we have listeners who might be interested in it too. <laughs> I agree. And like, if they start to uh, look at people beyond kind of, uh, that weird cohort, you know, white, uh, affluent, highly educated, will we see different love languages emerge, right? So I, I still, it's so fascinating to me that these are the love languages that we're sticking to, but are they really, what, there might be other ones, you know, like I'm just, that really is something I'm curious about too, as this, this body of research moves forward as well. Thank you so much, Sarah, for bringing this amazing article and fantastic discussion. So what should our listeners take away from this study? Well, I think first we want to be intentional about saying that if you are somebody who has found love languages to be helpful mm. in your relationship, that is powerful evidence. So we're talking about some of the science here around how this might work in couples and what might make this approach effective that is different than saying that you yourself have found this to be helpful. If that is the case, keep at it. There's <laughs> no, yes. nothing to suggest that, that you should stop. This is, that's really, really important, right? There are all kinds of different heuristics and, and frameworks and shortcuts and all kinds of things in our pop culture that help us understand ourselves and our relationships better. And those are really, really valuable if they're valuable to you. 
I would say that a few things that I am taking away from this science here on love languages is that we don't necessarily know whether the behavior that people are performing is leading to that relationship satisfaction from this study because that's not how they tested the data that they had. But we do see understanding your partner is valuable, not just for helping support how you're responsive to your partner's needs, but also for your own experience of a satisfying relationship. And that when you're, when there's bias sort of entering into that equation, when you're behaving in ways that align with your own preferences, not your partner's, that that is, that can become problematic for a few reasons, because we're misperceiving our, what our partner needs, we're misinterpreting maybe how they're behaving and our relationship may not be as satisfying depending on what our love language is. So I think also really important to think about how your own preferences for affection influence how you think about or experience how responsive your partner is. And this may be an area where people could sort of explore more about what do I understand about you? How do you prefer that I show you that I love you and I care about you? Because I really want to get that right. And also I'd like to sort of be able to be a little bit more open about what I need from you. How would, how can we have these conversations in ways that help us understand each other, whether or not you're going to use the five categories of love languages, right? And I think just as Sassan was saying earlier, I think probably it's helpful to expand your focus from a single love language to how affection that you receive in any of these ways might be meaningful for you. So if you are going to sort of stay close to these five love languages, because that's a helpful way to frame what you find valuable, think instead maybe about conveying or sharing with your partner how how they're showing up for you and showing they care in all of these different categories might be valuable as well as spending time to learn theirs, right? So it's unlikely any of us are just one of these things unless I guess you're all in on gifts and then- <laughs> Listen. More power, more power to you. <laughs> samesies, samesies. Thanks for listening to Attached. As always, a link to the study is in our show notes. And remember, your reviews and ratings help more people find us. So please consider to rate and review Attached on your favorite app. Finally, if you have any relationship questions you want us to talk about, email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on all those social medias at attachedpodcast. We cannot wait to talk about it.